0: Has no regard for human life, either one of them. So, those are the people we don't need out walking around.
1: That was Flagler County Sheriff's Commander Steve Brandt talking about Christopher Ropp, the man who escaped from a Pennell jail, stole a car, and killed a preacher during a head-on collision on the Hammock Dunes Bridge 17 years ago. That story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll tell you about a shocking news story out of Palm Beach County, where a man was accused of firing a gun at two brothers after one of them scored a touchdown on him during a pickup football game at a public park in Wellington. And later, I'll discuss the shocking death of Pastor Don Burgess, who died during his commute home from Bible study. His sedan was crushed head-on by a flatbed pickup truck which had been stolen out of a yard in Bunnell. The man who stole that truck and caused the fatal crash was Christopher Ropp, who had just escaped from jail. The story made national news and took place during an acrimonious transition of power at the Flagler County Sheriff's Office. My guests for that segment will include former Flagler County Sheriff Jim Manfrey as well as Commander Steve Brandt. Stay tuned for that story. Coming up, the latest development in a unique murder case out of Broward County, involving the 1993 slaying of a pregnant teen. Ronnie Keith Williams has spent a large chunk of his life on death row. He was convicted in 2004 of fatally stabbing a pregnant woman 11 years ago in Broward County. Authorities have charged him again with murder, this time for the death of that pregnant woman's son. Julius Dyke was born by cesarean section two days after his mother, Lisa, was stabbed. During the attack, Julius suffered brain damage while inside the mother's womb. Julius died in 2016 at the age of 23. He died from complications related to his brain injury. That meant prosecutors set their sights again on convicting Williams of murder. The South Florida Sun Sentinel reported that Julius' grandmother, Margaret Dyke, wept when she was told that prosecutors would charge Williams with first-degree murder in Julius's death. Authorities said Williams attacked 18-year-old Lisa Dyke while she was babysitting for a friend in 1993. She was in the kitchen making toast when Williams came in looking for someone else. Williams stabbed the girl repeatedly and also bit her all over her body. Her baby barely survived. After his birth, Julius was confined to his bed for life, according to the Sun Sentinel. He was unable to walk or talk. He ate through a feeding tube. His grandmother was his caretaker. Margaret told the Sun Sentinel that Williams is responsible for taking two lives, as well as destroying hers. Williams, when he killed Lisa, had just been released from prison. He had been convicted for the 1984 murder of a 21-year-old Fort Lauderdale man. The victim in that case had been stabbed to death and dumped in an abandoned field. After he was convicted in 2004 for Lisa's murder, jurors voted 10 to 2 to recommend a death sentence. Back then, death sentences could be carried out by a majority vote, but a Supreme Court ruling last year ended that practice. Now, jurors must be unanimous, so Williams will go through another sentencing hearing for Lisa's death, as well as a trial for the murder of Julius Dyke. Coming up, the bizarre story of a pickup football game that ended in gunfire. On November 12th, Palm Beach County Sheriff's deputies interviewed a man in Boynton Beach who told them a strange story. He and his brother had just finished playing a pickup football game when a gun was fired at them by one of the men on the opposing team. The Palm Beach Post reported that 28-year-old Rulian Michelle was arrested on charges of aggravated assault with a weapon and shooting into an occupied vehicle. Deputies said a group of men were playing football at Wellington Green Park when a fight broke out around 12.45 p.m. Witnesses told the sheriff's office that a group of men left the park, crossed the street to their cars, and were ready to leave when they saw a white BMW speed away and fire a weapon toward a black SUV. Authorities were soon called by a woman in Boynton Beach who told them that her sons had been involved in that shooting. Deputies interviewed them separately, according to the Post, and they told the same story. They had been playing football with a group at the park when one of the brothers scored a touchdown on Michelle, who became irate and threatened to kill them. The brothers ran to their car and tried to get away but they wound up getting trapped on a dead-end street. One of the brothers fled the vehicle, and Michelle fired his weapon. The older brother, the one driving, sped away and picked up his brother. Then they went straight home. The older brother knew the shooter because he had gone to high school with him, so he turned him in, according to news reports. The suspect was arrested December 6th, and as of last week, he remained jailed on $100,000 bail. Deputies said he also is being investigated in an unrelated domestic battery case. Coming up, the story about the death of a Palm Coast preacher who was killed in his vehicle by a man who had just busted out of jail. Pastor Don Burgess was killed the night of December 27th, 2000 when his vehicle was struck head-on by a careening flatbed pickup. The collision occurred just east of the toll plaza of the Hammock Dunes Bridge, which crosses the Intracoastal Waterway and connects the city of Palm Coast with the Hammock, an unincorporated beachside community. The 60-year-old preacher was returning to his home in Palm Coast following a Wednesday night prayer meeting He was a preacher at Hammock First Baptist Church. He was a week away from celebrating his first anniversary at the church. He had a history of providing faith counseling to inmates. The culprit of the crash was 24-year-old Christopher Lee Robb, an inmate who had just broken out of the Flagler County Jail. He stole a truck out of Bunnell and instigated a high-speed pursuit. Burgess died at the scene. Rop hardly had a scratch on him. He was taken into custody and charged with first-degree murder. Rop escaped the jail with Jerry Hightower, who was not with Rop at the time of the crash. Instead, he found a way to escape to Seminole County, where he was arrested days later. Rob was originally from Cape Canaveral. He had a history of escaping custody. It all began in September of that year, when Rob's vehicle was discovered stolen during a routine traffic stop. He struggled with deputies at the scene and then ran across Interstate 95 and into a wooded area where he came upon Deputy Steve Brandt, a former high school wrestler. Here is Brandt, now a commander with the Flagler County Sheriff's Office, describing to me his encounter with Rob.
0: I remember um, listening to the radio and I kinda had a general idea where they were gonna be. So I exited my vehicle and I ran, I went in the woods looking for this guy. Well, I came across them, called it out, was giving him commands, he wouldn't listen, and me and him engaged in a physical altercation. Um, and uh, I was able to get him secured Ropp may have been subdued quickly,
1: but he had intended not to go peacefully.
0: It went down fairly quickly. Um, I, I had drawn on him, didn't have tasers or nothing at the time. I had drawn on him, given him verbal commands to get on the ground. He basically uh, gestured to me in such a way that was telling me he was not going to comply, and then verbally confirmed his hand gesture. At that point, I reholstered and engaged physically with him.
1: The following month, while an inmate at the jail, he complained to detention deputies of stomach pains. Rob was brought to Memorial Hospital Flagler. While there, he shoved a deputy and fled the hospital. A 15-hour manhunt resulted in him being caught in neighboring St. Johns County. Then on December 27th, Rob Orchestrated his most daring escape yet. He and Hightower escaped from a recreation yard within the confines of the jail. They scaled a chain-link fence topped with razor wire and then disappeared into the woods. They headed southeast through the woods and split up. Rob found a truck to steal somewhere near US-1 and drove away. The stolen truck was spotted going down State Road 100, not far from where Rob had originally been arrested in September. He continued driving toward Flagler Beach before jumping on I-95, heading north. He got off at the next exit, Palm Coast Parkway. Had he headed west, he would have been on his way toward US-1, could have headed north, where there was endless real estate. Instead, he went east, and there is not much dry land east of I-95 in Palm Coast. By vehicle, you can reach the Atlantic Ocean in a matter of minutes. But Rop chose to go east. He headed directly to the Hammock Dunes Bridge. He went through the Palm Harbor Parkway intersection and saw that the eastbound toll plaza had been blocked off. He veered over to the westbound lanes and zoomed through the plaza. Seconds later, his vehicle collided head-on with Burgess's vehicle, which was coming down a slope. The story of the pastor killed by an escaped inmate two days after Christmas was gobbled up by the media, local and national. What also made the story unusual was that it occurred during an acrimonious transition of power at the Flagler County Sheriff's Office. In August of that year, Jim Manfrey defeated incumbent Robert McCarthy in the Democratic primary by a resounding margin. McCarthy was the county's longest tenured sheriff in history, and the defeat embarrassed him. He was appointed in 1983 after his predecessor was removed from office for ethics violations. McCarthy went on to win four consecutive sheriff's elections afterward. Flagler County's growth from 1983 to 2000 is difficult to put into words. In places where it had been desolate, it had become suburban. The population boom was unlike anywhere else in the United States at that time. McCarthy had to modernize the sheriff's office quickly. In some ways he did, in other areas he came up short. During his last term, his deputies had turned on him. By early 2000, they had unionized. They were unanimous in their desire for a new leader. That new leader was Manfrey, who had never been a police officer before. What was enticing to deputies at the time was that Manfrey had been a district attorney investigator and prosecutor in New York, but what those deputies liked most about him was that he wasn't McCarthy. Manfrey's transition from attorney to leader of a growing police force was bound to be challenging. It was one that he hadn't really wanted for himself, at least not at first. Manfrey told me he resisted request after request to run against McCarthy in 2000, but those who were recruiting him were not taking no for an answer.
2: It was, uh, you know, a, a, a very tough transition. I mean, I just for all the things I told you uh, and all the things you said, I had not been a sheriff, you know, a deputy before. Um, I had been recruited by the deputies uh, who I met on on a baseball field. My son was on a foul baseball team and who recruited me to do this, which I did not want to do. I, I had come to Florida. I had retired from 16 years of law enforcement as a prosecutor and as an investigator, and when I came to Florida, I was to do real estate development, Uh, and they basically browbeated me into, um, you know, running for sheriff. And I, I got calls from the FBI who I'd worked with in uh, in, out on Long Island, who had uh, uh, had heard about my uh, relocation, and apparently a local. FBI had reached out because the former sheriff was a target of theirs. Um, the Administrative Judge, Kim Hammond, called me. Uh, Ken Tucker, who was the Regional Director of FDLE. John Tanner, who was the, the head of the uh, State Attorney's Office, reached out to me. Or I, I think John reached out personally and others about you know taking him, him on because he was such a, uh, an issue for them.
1: During an interview he did with me 18 months ago while Manfrey was still sheriff, he told me about a meeting he had with a pair of McCarthy's top officers in the sheriff's office. At the time of that meeting, Manfrey hadn't committed to running. But once he was confronted by McCarthy's bullies, he decided then and there that he would run.
2: Then one day I was in my uh, office, and uh, at that time I was corporate counsel Um, for the the land development company, and uh, a member of Bob McCarthy's upper management came in and um, threatened to hurt me and my family if I decided to run for office. Um, You don't threaten a New Yorker.
1: His mind was changed in that moment. Manfrey told the senior officers that he would spend every penny he had to defeat McCarthy in the coming election. Then he told him to get out of his office. He may have peppered it with a profanity or two. After Manfred defeated McCarthy in the primary, he went on to win the general election. It is common courtesy for an outgoing sheriff to accommodate the incoming sheriff, whether it's to provide workspace or even access to employee information. McCarthy provided none of that to Manfrey. He wouldn't even allow him on the premises.
2: I was having issues with the, the the present sheriff. He refused to allow a transition. I sent him a letter and asked him, you know, to meet with him. And you have to remember, I'd, I'd lived in this community about, I mean, been working here for a couple of years, but only lived in the community a year and a half when I got elected. Um, I had even even been to the sheriff's office before. So I asked to come up and meet with him, and he refused. And I literally went up to the office to try to... Uh, to meet with him and he uh, he had a deputy at the front door uh threatening to arrest me if i came into a lobby so it was not a good um you know it's not a good transition
1: during the last few days before he took over the media were contacting Manfrey about the jailbreak and vehicular murder of don burgess Manfrey had no answers he had no information other than what deputies were telling him but just before midnight on January 1st, Manfrey finally got access to the office. Before his January 3rd swearing-in ceremony, Manfred decided to hold a media conference about the jailbreak. The media had been applying a lot of pressure. By then, CNN was on the scene. The news wire services were waiting to beam out stories to newspapers across Florida and beyond. TV reporters were in the parking lot. The News Journal was there, so was the Orlando Sentinel. Before Manfrey addressed the media, he was floored by another development. The jail supervisor, Sam San Giorgio, one of the few top-ranking officials who did not resign on McCarthy's last day showed up to work that morning three sheets to the wind
2: one of the commanders uh, I believe they call them lieutenants at the time lieutenants came over uh, to us um, into the conference room uh, at the Sheriff's Operations Center and said um, you know we have a problem um, and I said what's the problem why isn't you know Captain San Giorgio here and they said he's intoxicated so I said what do you mean he's intoxicated 6 o'clock in the morning Um, They said, he's intoxicated. I said, is he at his desk? Yes. I said, well, bring him over. So he came, they brought him over, literally, you know, carrying him into the conference room, um, and he smelled like alcohol. I mean, as soon as he came in, there was an odor of alcohol on him. His eyes were glassy, typical um, behavior from someone who's intoxicated. Uh, And I'm not talking to someone who's been drinking. He was drunk.
1: Manfrey suspended San Giorgio on the spot. He declined to divulge that information to the media until after an investigation was conducted. It took 10 days. At the end of that investigation, San Giorgio was fired. More information about breakdowns at the jail were uncovered later. Rop, who had tried to escape his arrest and then escaped custody while at the hospital, was permitted to return to the jail's general population, even though he was a known flight risk. Additionally, the video camera aimed at the wreck area in the jail was broken. It was recommended by staff to keep the wreck area empty and fix the camera, but San Giorgio overruled that recommendation. There was one other discovery. The escapees on December 27th had access to a ladder According to Manfrey, it was lying in proximity to the wall they had to climb to get outside the perimeter. Manfrey told me he knew that McCarthy was rude and bitter, but he had no idea whether he was a careless or incompetent sheriff. By then, he was convinced of both.
2: Clearly, by not allowing the transition, by allowing the sheriff's office to sort of uh, continue to be in disarray, led to this incident, in my opinion. Uh, I think his, you know, his his, his fingerprints are are on this incident because uh, the rank and file have been complaining about these very things, the lack of, you know, proper decisions, the lack of discipline. Some tragedies are not preventable. This one was preventable.
1: McCarthy has been dead for 12 years. Manfrey's feelings about him have not abated. Rob's incessant urge to escape jail resulted in a very long prison sentence. In 2001, he pleaded no contest to second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison. That was the deal he struck with the state attorney's office. The widow of Don Burgess told the media after that hearing that her family had to wrestle with the thought of giving their blessing to the plea bargain. They did so, she said, after realizing her husband would have done so. He would have wanted Rob to get another chance of freedom one day. Rob said nothing during his sentencing hearing, but his eyes welled with tears when he saw Burgess's widow in the courtroom. Hightower, meanwhile, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his charges. He was released from prison in January 2010. During the period between Burgess's murder and that 2001 sentencing hearing, Rop tried to break out of jail again. In that case, Rop was caught before he even left his cell area. He had been locked inside a separate cell that was constantly under video surveillance. That didn't prevent him from trying. He made up his bed so that it looked like someone was sleeping in it. Then he jimmied up his cell door. Guards spotted him just as he was reaching out of another door in an attempt to grab a nearby phone. Guards swarmed his cell and he was locked inside without incident. Rop, by that time, was in a place where he would have had to break through three or four locked doors in order to escape the jail. Rop is now 41 years old. He is being held at the Columbia Correctional Institution Annex outside of Lake City. He's scheduled to be released May 3rd, 2045, at which time he will be 68 years old. Brand thinks Rop is perfectly suited for prison, one that's heavily fortified.
0: Dave's a bad dude, bad guy, him and Hightower, both, you know, so. Um, kind of people who do anything to get what they want and what they need and don't really care who they hurt to do it. So, you know, those are the guys we need to keep in jail.
1: Manfrey's first term as sheriff got off to a rough start and it stayed rough for a few more weeks.
2: It didn't get any better. 30 days later, a teacher's aide drove a vehicle into uh, a classroom full of kids. And so within the first month or maybe six weeks later, I was on CNN twice because that made national news as well.
1: That teacher's aide, Victoria Asierno, was charged with more than 20 counts of attempted murder in that case. A steel beam was the only thing that prevented her from killing a classroom full of third graders she wound up being found not guilty by reason of its sanity and she remains hospitalized
2: it was uh, an interesting six six weeks and i guess some people would say it was a harbinger of things to come for me um you know i don't think there was a year that i was sheriff that it wasn't a major issue
1: manfred lost his re-election bid in 2004 but he won back his seat eight years later by the time he finished his second four-year term he oversaw an expansion at the jail. There were no successful escapes while he was sheriff. In spite of the tumult he endured while wearing the star, Manfrey never was tempted to look toward the sky and ask,
2: why me? You know, I um, never, to be honest with you, and I'm being honest about that. You know, I, uh, I'm a man of faith. Uh, you know, God guides me. I didn't quite understand why he particularly guided me to this. It's not, you know, a path that I would have uh, ever thought I would be in. If you told me when I was 25 years old as a young prosecutor that I would be the sheriff of a, a county in, uh, in the south, um, uh, I would have uh, thought you were, you, you were mad. Um, but clearly that's where the Lord wanted me to be in both times.
1: Manfree a member of the Florida Bar, has returned to private practice. Thank you for listening. Let me also take this time to wish all of you a Happy New Year. Tune in next week, where I will discuss the cold case of Ruth Ann Chasen, who was the victim of a homicide and arson 17 years ago in Wakula County. Join us then.
0: You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news
1: JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.